Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. On this week's program, we have Middle East Myth or Reality, Separating Fact from Fiction, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. This conversation features John Moore, a 20-year veteran of public, private, and nonprofit organizations throughout the Islamic world, and Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore, no relation, who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. The two speakers offer their insight into the Middle East and take questions from the audience. This program was recorded at 49th State Brewing Company on May 16th. We begin with Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore. I think the best way to describe kind of my initial my reflections on the Middle East is to kind of consider like the United States's like collective reflections on the Middle East because I think that's kind of where I'm at. Prior to 9/11, really, I didn't know anything about it, and uh, you know, shortly thereafter, I knew everything about it uh, more than I wanted to, and then. That continued throughout the invasion, up through the surge of 2006, and then somewhere around 2009, my perspective changed. And I went to Naval Postgraduate School and oriented on the Pacific. So my reflections on the, uh, on the region are kind of waning, if, if that makes any kind of sense. I still keep an eye on uh, current events, obviously. I'm very interested in what's going on in Syria and, of course, Iran. Um, I, I learned a lot uh, through my time in, in the Middle East, but I was not ready for, I, I wasn't ready for tonight to uh, hit, hit kind of a roadblock with what my perspective actually is because it's been a while. Thanks, Ty. I mean, um, coming, I, I've been in Alaska now for just over a year, and for most of my professional life, I've been overseas, so this is the first time I've been stateside in, in quite a while. Um, but, but before I get started, I, I just want to emphasize that, that I'm here today as a private citizen, and none of my comments uh, reflect or represent any agency or organization that I might have been with in the past or am currently with now. And also, just, just want to emphasize that none of my comments uh, are intended as an offense to any ethnicity or religion, not, by, not in any way, shape, or form. You know, I mean, um, I've had the opportunity to, to travel uh, through most of the Middle East, uh, and I think there's only two countries in the region I haven't actually been to, um, and I've had a chance to, to live in, in many of them um, as well. You know, I've got uh, my, my two boys, um, they were baptized in the Holy City in, in Jerusalem. Uh, just, you know, fantastic experience. Um, you, you know, the, the friends that I've made along the way, uh, they've been a real gift. Uh, I, I really treasure uh, their friendship and, and in some cases their memory. And, and they've taught me so much about life, uh, about what not to take for granted, about the beauty around and inside us, and unfortunately about the capacity for brutality that's inherent in everyone. Uh, far too many of my friends are, are, are gone, um, or they've been forced to flee their homes, and all have my deepest gratitude and respect. So in reflecting a little bit more on my time in the Middle East, you know, 23 or so years, um, or in the Islamic world, 
um, the following points are, are, are driven home every time I turn on the news these days. So the first uh, um, you know, kind of point I'll throw out there is complexity. Um, you know, the, the Middle East, it's not some monolithic, homogenous, you know, kind of mass of people. Very different. You know, many different countries, many different peoples. Uh, for those who speak Arabic, I mean, when you travel around the region, you'll actually know because you might speak a certain dialect and in other places you might not necessarily be well understood or you might not necessarily understand them. Uh, even within countries, that dialectal uh, difference is there. And then, you know, there's this, this thing about living in history. So, you know, just, uh, you know, in the places that, that, that I've been, some in Iraq and elsewhere, you know, the Garden of Eden. You know, when you're in, this, in, these, in, in the region, you know, the Bible, it comes alive. The Garden of Eden is in a place called West Gurna. That's an oil field now in southern Iraq that's in the marsh area of, of, uh, of Basra. Um, Ur. Does anybody know what Ur is? Yeah, well, it's the birthplace of Abraham. <laughs> I mean, this is in Iraq. It's, it's, uh, it's in south of Baghdad. Uh, Mesopotamia, you, you know, I mean, the, 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 all of this learning that, you know, my, my older boy, he was reading and learning uh, ancient civilizations, and I was getting so excited because he's, you know, reading about the Code of Hammurabi, and uh, yeah, it's just, just amazing. And as I mentioned, Jerusalem, but then you get to today, so, you know, this is, um, in some ways, I, I guess, you're talking about the American experience. Americans sometimes, and forgive me if this is a bit too generalizing. Sometimes we live almost ahistorical w without understanding our history, um, and that you know we're always looking to tomorrow. Where a lot of times the folks in the region they're living so much in the memory of that history that sometimes that that's another complexity that that perhaps gets in the way, um, but also at the same time enriches the the, the everyday life. Um, the, the other thing I would say is. Uh, um, you know, people, politics, and conflicts, um, and it's not just a conflict, it's conflicts within conflicts. Um, you know, even just within Iraq, I mean, there, there's multiple wars, multiple insurgencies, uh, and multiple tensions that are going on. It's very, very hard to boil down to a headline. Um, economics, we can get into later, no worries, um, if, if you're interested. Um, and then the, the other thing that, that your kind of major headline that, or, or, or point that comes to me is about relationships. It's about trust and respect. And, and I'll say that, you know, um, in some ways this is kind of anywhere, and I'll say that here in Alaska as well, um, you know, with the friends that I've made here, but, you know, once you earn the trust and respect of the folks, regardless of where I've been, it's genuine. It's pretty genuine. And, I mean, you know, I've, I've been in some pretty interesting places, some places probably where you were at as a Marine, um, but I wasn't there as a soldier. I was there as a humanitarian or development worker, and um, it was the local people that took care of me, and they made sure that I stayed safe. Um, and the, the last thing that I'll put out there is, and this is, I think is also quite relevant in today's America, in, in any stage in America, or any country for that matter, is the search for an explanation. Um, you know, politicization, you know, competing narratives, uh, um, I think that gets in the way of that sometimes. And that also feeds into that drive, or, or that desire in some ways, um, to believe in, in conspiracy and to look to blame someone else for the problems that you're um, facing or that your country is facing or your people are facing. So that again, you know, th those are some of the reflections that I have and, and so I think kind of going forward, I think Ty's going to pitch me a, few, a question or two and I might throw one back at him. So uh, over to you, Ty. Okay, 
I do have a question for you that I've been meaning to ask you since we met. So I have to tell a story to ask the question properly because I got to kind of frame the question right. Okay, so let me rewind to my first deployment. It uh, was August 26th, uh, 2001. And I remember that date because it was our second anniversary was the day I left. So from August 26th until September 11th, we had made it as far as Australia and my battalion was training there, right? Australia, plug for Australia. And uh, that's when we got the, the news that we'd been attacked and it was the Australians who picked us up from the bars and drove us down to the <laughs> ships and uh, sent us on our way to the North Arabian Sea and eventually, uh, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan. After that, uh, my time with the Marine Corps is done. My initial obligation was up. So I was coming back home. The plan at the time was come back home, be a state trooper. It didn't work out. Uh, I was on, I had 60 days of leave built up. So I moved back home um, and prepared to become a state trooper. And on my 56th day of terminal leave, I got a phone call from the regimental operations officer who said you have four days to make it to the ship because we're invading Iraq now. I wasn't really expecting that at the time. And it really, um, to be honest with you, John, it kind of threw my life and Jenny's life into disarray. So the, the question I had was, do you believe the 2003 invasion of Iraq was in the national interest of the United States? Um, uh, you know, that, that's a great question. Um, and one that obviously is, is you know, kind of one of those very large looming questions and, and I guess I need a little dose of humility in trying to answer that. Um, but you know from, from where I sit, um, from the work that I had done in the intelligence community and then afterwards uh, in, in, in the region, I, I, I do not believe um, that the 2003 invasion was in America's national interests. Saddam at the time uh, was no existential threat to the United States and there was no change to the intelligence picture with respect to Iraq's potential possession of weapons of mass destruction. Between 1998, so 97-98, that's when the UN was kicked out by Saddam. Uh, some of you uh, with gray hair like myself uh, were around to remember that. I was actually working for the Joint Chiefs at the time um, during that activity. and and. Then in the lead up to 2003, the UN went back in and did their own, an additional monitoring mission under UMAVIC. And if you actually go back and look at the data, the public data is there, um, there was no evidence to suggest uh, that Saddam had re rebuilt that capacity. So that gets back to that point about politicization. Um, that said, um, you, or, sorry, and, and then you know the other thing that kind of somewhat sticks in my craw somewhat was the attempt to link Osama bin Laden uh, to Saddam Hussein. It was then and remains illogical. Saddam saw bin Laden as an enemy and vice versa. Bin Laden's worldview was shaped in part by the Iraqi threat to Saudi Arabia in 1990. Now, he didn't forget that and he certainly didn't forgive it. Um, you, by shifting, so then after the 9-11 attacks and, and so just purely by happenstance, I ended up, I was in Manhattan that morning. 
So when the first tower fell, I was about 12 blocks away. Um, so it certainly had you know, a great impact on me um, being there at the, at the scene. But after you know, those attacks and, and you know, I was in Afghanistan uh, as a humanitarian, and I saw firsthand when you know, the resources were being sucked away from Afghanistan preparing to go into Iraq, and my wife uh, was there as well, and she could probably uh, you know, kind of share a common thought on that too. Um, you know, but in, in so doing, you know, Iraq, it, it, you kind of, it, to me anyway, it eroded the post-9-11 legitimacy that America had. Um, and a few other kind of outcomes there as well. It accelerated the fragmentation of the post-Ottoman regional order, and you know, kind of you know, a lot. It didn't start with 2003; it started well before then. But it, but 2003 picked it up, and it fragmented things in ways that were well beyond control, um, and certainly a, a, a big issue that we're ch uh, challenged with today. And also, it you know, it wasn't just the U.S. that made mistakes in Iraq. The Iraqis made a lot of mistakes as well. Um, and but what occurred was an enabling environment that led to the rise of Daesh, Dawla wa Arabiya wa Asham, otherwise known as Islamic State, uh, that we're dealing with today. So, and, and this is not, and th my comments are not meant to um, take yeah, to, to take anything away from those who served on the ground, uh, not just Thai, but so many others. Um, and I have so much respect and faith in those folks that were there. But from that macro strategic perspective, I would have to say that, that I don't think it was in the American national interest. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA 91.1 FM. Today we're hearing from John Moore, who has spent over 20 years working in various capacities in South Asia, East Africa, and the Middle East. We're also hearing from Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore, no relation, who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We continue with their insight into the Middle East. So I will have to say, n number one, I've got a huge soft spot for the Marine Corps, not just because Ty is a very good-looking redhead. Um, let's see, I got the plug-in for you, man. I got the plug-in for you. I'm on. <laughs> um, what, because, so at VMI, my first CO was married to Chesty Puller's daughter. So if anybody knows anything about the Marine Corps, Chesty Puller's the most decorated Marine, and he's an amazing legend. Um, and anyway, so the, my CO at that time was uh, then Colonel Bill Dabney. Uh, during Vietnam, he had a hill named after him, Dabney's Hill. And uh, let me tell you, he's a good man. So uh, a question for you, Ty. Did the Marine Corps training prepare you well for your engagement with local community leaders in Iraq? And how did the Marine Corps team adapt its training over time? We probably have a different definition of the word engagement, which might be <laughs> important to highlight here. Not, not, not with a rifle. Then no. Not at first. Let, let me say that. Uh, we didn't have the, the necessary training in place at the beginning because we didn't know it was going to happen initially. And even if we did know it was going to happen, if you're talking about the invasion, it was on our timetable. We had... We had to focus on the first thing first, right? Which was uh, d destroy the enemy combatants. Mm. Like the, from a Marine Corps perspective, that's what we had to do. Um, and in that regard, yeah, training is top-notch, world-class, best there is. Uh, but what we eventually found out after a, enough time in country was that 
um, engagement not with a rifle, as you say. Like we needed something to um, instill that in our in our junior Marines, very junior Marines. In a, a lot of cases, um, guys who had were on their first enlistment were the ones who would interact with some of the the uh, local leaders. So eventually what we did is we built a city and we hired role players, um, a, a lot of which had been our uh, interpreters in, in country prior to that. And then they would uh, come over, immigrate to the United States. And uh, we, we have a very large, Marine Corps has a very large training facility in the middle of the desert. The climate is identical to Iraq, so that worked out well. It really felt like you were there. And the, uh, the role players really uh, helped us kind of get there. The, be the best training that, that I had didn't really have anything to do with preparation for combat. Really what it was was uh, like instruction in how to recruit. The Marine Corps does a good job at recruiting people. Uh, it's the uniform, but we don't just rely on that. We rely on interpersonal communication skills and things like that. So we figured out how to teach that to each other. And eventually that's what would help us out the most in country. Not at first, but eventually, yes. I had another one for you. This will be the last one. And then you have to deal with them. With the, with the recent events and us pulling out of the Iran nuclear uh, sanctions deal, what do we need to watch out for? Do I need to expect another phone call to try to retire? <laughs> uh, you might. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so, I mean, number one, to clarify, so who, who in here thinks Iran is actually a Middle Eastern country? It's not. It's South Asian, completely different evolution, linguistic group, all of the above. That said, obviously, it has a lot of influence and, and interaction and play with the Middle Eastern countries. But uh, with respect to the JCPOA and you know, kind of um, what, what's occurred you know, the last week or two in terms of the current administration pulling out of, the, out of that agreement, I mean, the path forward, for, from my perspective, uh, is unclear. Um, you know, I think we also need to realize that the, the JCPOA or the nuclear agreement that was signed between the European powers, the U.S. and Iran, um, was never designed to rein in um, Iran's non-nuclear behavior. It was never designed to create some rapprochement between the, the West and Iran. It was designed to keep them in a box around their nuclear weapons capability. Um, so if you're, you know, a North Korean right now, you might have a few interesting thoughts running through your head, I would imagine. But I say that, but it's also, you know, important to realize that I'm not saying that Iran is not a threat. It is. I mean, but the other thing to think about Iran is, is it a peer enemy of the United States? Does it actually have, I mean, you're a Marine. I mean, you know, does it ha is it a peer for the U.S. Marine Corps? There are no peers. <laughs> Great answer. That recruiting answer right there. Exactly. Um, so, so I guess for me, it, 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 it's also about, it's not just about pulling out of the JCPOA, but it's, it, it's about fighting the enemy where it exists and not 
putting it up, you know, um, giving it so much credibility that it is something that is not, and then also fighting it where or, or creating opportunities for it to actually grow power. So I would say that that um, again, it's just it's very unclear as to what the path forward is with Iran, um, and, and but also I think we need to be careful to disassociate to a degree the theocratic regime in Iran and the Iranian people. And certainly the Iranians that I deal with, they would disassociate the American government away from the American people. They have two very different versions. So I think with that, I mean, you know, I wish I could say that, that it was a bit clearer and that you could go home and hang up the uniform, but um, it, it, it's uncertain times. If if there's one thing I do remember from the Middle East, it's the lack of clarity <coughs> on anything. Right. So eventually what we found out, we would track enemy activity all the time. Really all that means is you put dots in the map of where the bombs went off. And what we found out uh, through the interactions that we had was the more, what would happen is when the, the dots in the map fill up, that's where our resources go. Resources are people, it's equipment, and it's also money. And the locals figured that out too. So eventually, who was putting those dots on the maps, who was creating mm -hmm. the attacks on us, were the, the people who were trying to support us, who did not want us to leave. They wanted right. us to stay and continue to apply resources uh, to those locations. It was our friends. And it was our friends not because they were trying, they were now our enemy, they weren't. But they would conduct attacks on us, as far as we could tell, so they could get money. And they did get money. Hmm. There were also enemy there as well. There were also people who didn't like our enemy, people who didn't like our friends. So trying to disentangle that for somebody who's supposed to be charged with managing the the battle space on the ground becomes extremely complicated. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, um, so you had uh, Maliki, you had the elections in 2010, um, you're getting into the, the rise of uh, Daesh, uh, you know, the U.S. withdrawal. Um, you know, there was a whole other series of things that were going on that didn't get a whole lot of coverage. So, I mean, in 2007, uh, um, this is after Zarqawi um, um, was killed, Musa'ab al-Zarqawi, um, one of the progenitors of, of ISIS. Um, there's actually, it's now public information, signals traffic that was picked up by al-Qaeda in Iraq saying that we feel like we're in a closed circle. So what did they mean by that? They meant that the operational intensity and effectiveness of the combined coalition activity along with the Anbar Awakening, the Sawaun, was having real impact on the ground, on these guys, uh, on the, the insurgency that was you know, targeting the US and, and the Iraqi government. But once we pulled back into the cities and eventually withdrew, Maliki did not take up the opportunity that was granted to him to try to build some political accord across the, 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 the religious, ethnic, and, and ideological divide. And that helped get us to where we are today. But getting back to that question on Iran, so, and I'm sure you guys have read the similar analysis elsewhere, but so before 2001, Iran had two primary enemies on each of its borders. So the first was the Taliban, hardline Sunni extremist element, 
and the other was Saddam Hussein. Saddam himself was a secular Baathi. He tried to revitalize Islam as a, as a slogan during the Iran-Iraq War in the 80s. That's actually when you saw the Allahu Akbar put back onto the Iraqi flag. I think it was in 86. But So then we took away the enemy to the eastern flank and the western flank. So, and then, you know, what we talk about today, you just had the Iraqi elections, and you saw the list that's headed by Muqtada al-Sadr, um, who's not an Iranian proxy, by the way, even though he lived in Qom uh, for a, a, a while after he was forced to, to flee Iraq. But again, you know, again, the, the ability, or the, going back to the, the first question that you asked, understanding not just the first level, but the second level and tertiary effects of action that you take is so critical, particularly in a place like the Middle East. You know what I mean? Ty, you've had a heck of a career, and uh, um, you know, you, you've definitely chewed some dirt, and, and you've been around. Um, you, know, you said early on you kind of you felt a little bit more disassociated now, or it's kind of like it seems a bit far away, that experience or that memory. Uh, but, but if you were going to you know, kind of think about one memory that, that perhaps sticks with you the most uh, about your time in the region, what, what would that be? So it, it's got to be the people I, I met. Um, not, not just, the, uh, not, not just the, the troops on the ground, like my brothers that I went over with, but also the people that I met there. They weren't exactly what I thought they were from here. Um, and uh, I made a lot of friends, and I, I lost quite a few over there also. Um, mostly what I thought on the way over there was you kind of have this initial impression that everyone's a target. Because what you do is you ride in the back of a vehicle mm. until you get out in this strange land uh, with a, a language you don't speak. Nobody you know speaks the language. <clears throat> in a culture you don't understand. And your, your job is to make sure everybody's safe. Which is weird because we're, kind of, we're doing that with guns. Mm. So the, the initial thought I, I had towards everybody was there, it, it's all just a threat to, to me but they weren't. Most of the people I, I talked to were just trying to help. They just wanted their, their lives better. And sure, they saw the Americans as um, a piggy bank, mm. you know, a security blanket. Um, at least that's what they explained to us. But probably the, the thing that stuck with me the most, and it's why I asked the last question, is when we left the country, we did exit interviews with all of the key players that we interacted with from uh, other military commanders, police commanders, politicians, doctors who ran hospitals, and we asked them, we're, you can tell we're, this is 2009, we're starting to taper off. What is gonna happen in the future when we leave? And they all told me the same thing, that they were gonna go to war with Iran. So I don't know what you make of that, but that's what stuck with me, and it's why I asked you, like, how nervous do we should we be right now? No, thanks. I mean, which I, I think you answered. Yeah, I mean, the, the contours of the next iterations of conflict, I think, are pretty easy to see. But um, no, I mean, thanks, Todd. I mean, I mean that that means a lot to me. Um, 
not just as somebody who spent you know most of their professional life out there, but just as a um, you know fellow American sitting next to you, man. Um, so with that, uh, I think um, we'll open it up and, and would, would really welcome any questions or, or, or thoughts that, that y'all might have. Assalamu alaikum. Forgive me, if, if there's any uh, Muslims in the audience, Ramadan Kareem wa Ramadan Mubarak. I'm not. Hi. Um, I, so just a comment on preparation of Marines. Um, I saw a little booklet, and it was written in 1940s. And it was instructions for Marines going into Iraq. And those were amazing. I wish these were you know, printed, laminated, given to everyone, because those really still hold the same as back then as the, they do now. You're probably speaking of the Small Wars Manual. We, yeah, this we is, still have that in print. I mean, it's a little bit lengthy and it's outdated. But for me, I mean, my mission in life was to go and maybe train people to be more aware of that, because Arabs get I grew up in, in Syria, and you know the, the first impression, if you offend them in any way, and even if you don't know that you offend them, they hold it against you forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, yes, they do. So uh, my question here is, um, the issue with a, the proxy war right now, it's happening in Yemen, it's happening in Syria, Iran, you know, and the powers of being in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, I mean, there is evidence that they are financing some of these groups. In a way, we are somehow, we as in the United States, we, these are our frenemies, friends, I don't know what you want to call Saudi Arabia. Is there any possibility of being able to stop them and you know, just telling them, stop it? You guys are really fueling that fire in, in the Middle East right now. So. If you're asking from a, a U.S. government, because I'm, yes, can we? I, I'm in the oh. uniform, right? So I'm representing the U.S. government. Yes. I don't know if I have in a, either way. Well, a, I don't, a policy I know it's, answer. It's hard for you. Yes, I know it's, it's hard. But just you know, in, in general, just can we, as Americans, yes, the government. I mean, I know the military mm -hmm. takes orders, but it, it's really it's been a problem that proxy mm -hmm. war. It's it keeps on going on, unless somebody st says stop. Yeah, it, it it does in. I, I don't have a good answer on how to prevent proxy. I wish I did, because then I'd write a book and everyone else would read that one. And you'd be a really rich guy. That would be that would be awesome. <laughs> I don't know if the publishers of Small Wars Manual are rich, though. <laughs> They're not. I mean, they did a good job, but I don't think they see any money. Uh, but I, I don't have an answer. And I think if there was one, we would probably have a smart guy like John figure it out, and then we would we would put it into policy. I think the like the other countries are going to act in their best interest. Mm. You know, in the United States, sure, we, we try to act in our best interest also. Like, that, that kind of just makes sense to me. Uh, I don't know that we can just tell them to stop or make them stop. We probably could if we wanted to, but I don't think that would be in our interest either. And I'd be here, you know, like 20 years from now asking, John, was that in the, the U.S. <laughs> national interest being recalled off my 56th day of terminal leave <laughs> and had to go fight in Syria now? Right. So what are you? Um, I mean, I mean that, that, that's a, a question that you could ask in so many regions of the world, not just the Middle East. 
Um, I mean, the proxy conflicts in, 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 in the region. Um, number one, first I would say, and this is what I like to tell my, my uh, Middle Eastern friends uh, and some people that are not such friends sometimes. It's like, you know, if, if, uh, if the U.S. government, the military, and the CIA were as half as powerful as you actually think they are, you'd be in real trouble. Um, who is the United States to actually go and tell somebody what to do? Um, we do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to listen. Because again, I think as Ty rightly pointed out, they have their own, what they perceive as their interests. And then you have to kind of dissemble what's national interest versus the personal interest of a leader group or something along those lines. I mean, you can look at, at the, the, the conflict in Yemen. Uh, it, it's um, extremely sad. Uh, for those who don't know, I mean, they've had one of, I think, the largest modern outbreak of cholera, or at least in recent memory. Um, and so this is Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, that have gone into Yemen to fight against the Houthi rebels that they characterize as being Iranian proxies. Well, just a little factoid for you. Um, the Houthi rebels are a completely different theological interpretation of Shia Islam than the Velayati Faqih supreme leadership that you would find in Tehran. Um, the majority of the weapons that the Houthis have, they inherited from the Yemeni military that you know, several divisions defected to the Houthis. And so this is a long-standing civil conflict. And this is one, one of the things that I think Americans, and certainly some aspects of our policy community don't always grasp effectively, is that when you're intervening, you're typically intervening in something that's not necessarily new, and that there's a lot of other rivalries and tensions and power plays that are going on that, that, that you might want to try to understand before you step into it. Um, in terms of Syria and Iraq, I mean, could you imagine being a family going back into East Mosul right now into a place that is just utterly destroyed? Um, you know, who's going to rebuild that? Who's going to pay that bill? Um, it's a big one. And uh, um, yeah, so I mean, I think to, to your point, I think you kind of you have two parallel phenomena kind of going on. You're going to see a continuing fragmentation to a certain certain degree, and then you're also seeing a retrenchment, uh, particularly among the monarchies uh, in the region, um, you know, to fight against this. You know, kind of post Arab Spring type stuff as well. So um, yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, I don't see peace breaking out anytime soon, and it's just really unfortunate because there's a lot of beautiful folks there that deserve a little better. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today we have Middle East Myth or Reality, Separating Fact from Fiction, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. We've been hearing from John Moore, who has spent over 20 years working in public, private, and nonprofit sectors throughout the Islamic world, and Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore, a veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. The speakers have been giving their insight into the Middle East and will continue the program with questions from the audience. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, so uh, my son actually started out with um, Fourth Recon Echo Company here, and he... Um, Semper Fi. Semper Fi. And he called home at one point from the front, and I understand you're at a different level, but he, they let them use satellite telephones, and he called home and he said, Mom, these people are crazy. So, so you're saying it's complex and not understandable. Um, at least at the field infantry level, it was complex and not understandable. Do you think there's some kind of fundamental philosophical difference or lack of understanding between the East and the West that's unbridgeable? 
So I, I think John is much better uh, able to answer that question. But I can give you, I can give you my perspective. And I, I don't know if it's an East versus West thing. It might be because of our respective situations. But um, like the, the for example, um, when I would have to meet with leaders who I know were conducting attacks against me in our convoys, I knew they were doing that. Um, it's still from a self-interested perspective, which I could understand. The guy's trying to make money. He's trying to get paid. The, the complexity of the situation is that he's not the only one with an agenda that's there. Hmm. And there are a lot of different groups. It's, there, there wasn't one like, like homogeneous enemy that we just had to find. And if we could find the bad guys, and we could arrest them or kill them, then everything would be better. It, it wasn't that simple because there were so many different types of people in the region at the time um, it, caught up in the situation. I mean, that's, that's what I saw. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't walk away from tonight with the, the thought that it's not understandable. Um, I, I mean, my, my point is that it's just complex. And that, it, you know, a headline in a newspaper or on Fox or CNN or whatever, just it just can't do it justice. And so the, you know, the, the hopeful thing is that, you know, everybody in this room is probably a lot smarter than I am. But just, you know, take that time to go try and search out and try to understand. You know, I was kind of laughing the, earlier today. It was kind of like um, the analogy that I put forward. It's kind of like a guy from Virginia coming to Alaska to try to tell Alaskans about Alaska. Right? That'd be, number one, arrogant. Um, and I'm... Not that stupid because I'd probably end up getting laughed at, but but a similar thing, you, you know, you have to have a bit of humility, um, and uh, you know, so it, it's not to say that you're going to become an expert overnight or anything like that. And nobody and I, who's an expert on anything? Number one, unless maybe you're like some mathematician or something, but um, but again, you know, I would just walk away with the thought that. I mean, I was never in, in Thai's shoes or, or on that soldier side, but, you know, it, it is, you just have to take the time to try to, to understand that other person's reasoning and their logic. Um, it might be different than yours, but it still is a logic, and, and they do have a reason. So, sir. I want to thank both of you for being here, and I want to say as a, as a former... Uh, Army National Guard, Huey Crew Chief, whose unit was volunteered to go to Iraq, and uh, I was on active duty when Saddam invaded Kuwait the first time. Um, I appreciate what you do, and I've, I've always felt that no one prays harder for peace than soldiers. And I also appreciate the, the soft power of, uh, of NGOs and, and diplomacy, and I, I've been very interested in both those topics for my whole life. And uh, we can't all be experts on Iraq or, uh, or Iran or, or anywhere in the Middle East, but we might do better at being experts on how to be citizens here and influence our own behavior. And my question for you is, um, really, what can we do as citizens to affect uh, our footprint in the world uh, from home? And, and as an example, uh, in my own studies, I get the impression that no matter what country, the Middle East or elsewhere, um, folks mostly get upset that we're there at all with the military presence. 
and uh, guarding against this issue of folks doing things to keep the money flowing, whether that's, uh, as Eisenhower described, our own military industrial complex or just locals trying to get local funds from us when we're on scene. Um, how can we influence that from your perspective? Is, is there a useful argument that we can make at home to try to change the equation? So it, it kind of sounds to me like you're um, advocating for like a non-interventionist uh, policy or something like that. It might be the right answer. I don't know. So, I mean, uh, number one, thank, thanks um, for, for the question. Um, in terms of, so a little anecdote, so military power, right? So Iraq. So I was in Nasiriyah uh, after the Marines came through. And, um, the place I, was a mess, wasn't it? <laughs> there, there was a few holes in the wall where I lived, I'll have to admit. Um, but, but I will say that the, the folks that I talked to and dealt with, they actually didn't want the Americans to leave. Um, that's a small end. That's not obviously necessarily across the board. Um, but in terms of what can we do here at home uh, to better equip ourselves, I mean, I, I think perhaps to the kind of the former question as well, and, and to yourself, um, be interested. You know, try to actually understand and hold, you know, your elected leadership accountable for their actions. Um, and, you know, because at the end of the day, yeah, I have two boys, you know, 14 and 10. And, you know, while I'm an American, you know, I'm a Virginian true and true, and I now live here in Alaska amongst some great people. Um, you know, if, if my sons have to go and fight somewhere, I want it, you know, I, I want it to, to be for the right reasons at the right time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, all, all I can say is really try to get out there and engage and, and you know, come to you know, locations like this and, be part of the debate. You know, I tell my friends back back in, uh, well, I've got a few friends, I guess, these days. I'm getting old. But um, you got to get off the bench. You got to be counted. You have a voice. Let that voice be heard. So, uh, sir, need a microphone here. Thank you. I, uh, I'm actually really interested in the sort of perverted relationship that the U.S. has had with Pakistan, uh, especially as related to uh, conflict in Afghanistan, but there's a lot to say on, on the historic relationship, but I'm really more interested in what the future is going to look like in the middle, not just the Middle East, but all around Pakistan, Afghanistan included, uh, the entire region with uh, Pakistan, Pakistan's intelligence agencies as a, as a growing force in the region, and how you think that will impact uh, the either our role or the changing dynamic in that part of the world? Um, so, well, again, I mean, so obviously Pakistan and Afghanistan, they're South Asia, not Middle East, but they're part of Southwest Asia, so they've got a very big influence, as you rightly pointed out, on what's going on. So if, if you boil it back to the metric of what's in the national interest of the United States, so the big challenge on the uh, subcontinent in South Asia, it's not Afghanistan, it's the, the nuclear dynamic between Pakistan and India. I mean, that's uh, magnitudes of more importance than Afghanistan itself. Um, you know, I spent some time uh, in, in Pakistan in both uh, Islamabad in the frontier province and then Afghanistan, as the Lieutenant Colonel has as well. Um, interesting, you know, the, the apathy in Pakistan was very unfortunate in terms of engage, that engagement, you know. 
Um, but it was also another little anecdote. So I was in the Frontier Province. So does anybody know where the Swat Valley is? Okay, so you know where Swat is, right? And so um, if you've you know, been paying attention after 2003, um, you know, the Pakistani military went in and they conducted a series of operations. So I was there in 2002 and I went to the Swat Valley and I stayed with this beautiful gentleman. Uh, I was working for an NGO that was renowned in Pakistan for teaching English. And, um, and so I woke up the next morning and his, his little girl, she was probably eight or nine, came in to wake me up. And she's like, you're an American. I'm like, yep, I'm an American. She's like, well, that's really, really nice to meet you, you know, and, you know, I mean, you're welcome in Pakistan, but I just want to tell you that America's to blame for all of our problems. And I was like, I was astounded because here's this gentleman who had taken me into his home. So, like, on that one-on-one -on -one individual level, I mean, just fantastic. But his daughter is voicing what he teaches her. And, and so, yeah, I mean... So what that, if you kind of scale that up, again, I'd get back to that, those points of uncertainty. So there's, it's not just the Afghan dynamic that's going on. There's an insurgency in Baluchistan right now. There's a whole series of issues in Karachi and, and so forth. Um, my first ever um, trip to, uh, or when I lived in Pakistan for a while, I actually stayed with the journalists that were given the, the death tape of Danny Pearl. And if anybody remembers Danny Pearl, he was beheaded in Karachi, um, and I'd actually spoken to Danny Pearl about six months before he died. And uh, yeah, so again, you know, a lot of uncertainty in that space. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, I mean, in that, you know, Kashmir and all that's all tied into what's been going on. Um, but again, back to the, my original point, from a national interest perspective, it, it's all about Pakistani and Indian nuclear weapons. And that's the big one, right? This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA 91.1 FM. We've been hearing from John Moore, who has spent two decades working in various public, private, and nonprofit capacities in the Islamic world, and Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore, no relation, who's served in Iraq and Afghanistan. The speakers have been giving their insight into the Middle East and answering audience questions. We pick back up with an audience member. This question is for both Mr. Moores. <laughs> uh, with the current administration, um, withdrawing from the agreement with the new um, embassy in Jerusalem. It seems like we're just sort of riling things up over there. My wife wants to travel to Egypt in the fall or the winter. How safe are we <laughs> in heading to the Middle East? Uh, if I could go back tomorrow, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Um, not to say I wouldn't do it without a, an ounce of precaution and, and smarts. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to, to make necessarily political commentary. Um, personally, I, I, I don't think the move of the embassy to uh, uh, Yerushalayim, if you're speaking in Hebrew, or Al-Quds, if you're speaking in Arabic, uh, was the right thing to do. If you look at the UN uh, resolutions after 48, after the Nakba, I mean, the UN was, uh, Jerusalem was supposed to become an international city. Uh, so I've worked in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, again, as I mentioned, you know, I've had both my sons on the Lutheran. Um, the the uh, Church of the Holy Redeemer, when you look at the, the landscape of the Holy City, there's a, 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 an obelisk that comes up, and that was um, the Church of the Holy Redeemer built by Kaiser Wilhelm II on top of her Crusader Chapel in 1898. So that's where my boys were baptized. Um, 
So riling it up, I mean, I, I think perhaps some uh, believe that that is a strategy in and of itself, um, you know, kind of creative chaos, perhaps. Um, but in, in that instance, I don't necessarily agree uh, with that approach. Um, and it's not to say that I'm against Israel, because I'm not. Um, I, again, from the American national interest, I don't think it was a positive to take a side so overtly in that conflict. So I don't know if, Ty, if you got a comment on that or not. So the Marine Corps has employed the Marine Security Augmentation Unit to the embassy? So the Americans at the embassy will, will be fine, <laughs> if that matters. Um, the, uh, the, the larger regional implications of moving the, uh, the embassy, I, I think that's been on the books for, the, for a while. It so it's, it's not a new concept. It's just something that has, was supposed to have been done a while ago, and we really just got around to it. Yeah, it, it had always been put on the back burner because I think folks thought that it would rile things up, as you say. Um, but um, but at, again, so maybe that's the point. It could very well be. Again, perhaps people think that is the strategy. I'm not sure. I'm curious on uh, your opinion on the Kurdish people in northern Iraq and if Kurdistan will ever actually be recognized as its own country. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give that one straight to John. <laughs> That's a good question, though. Uh, so uh, I've, I've lived in Erbil, uh, traveled across uh, the Kurdish regions, and I've also uh, worked uh, in Kirkuk. Uh, so for those of you who know anything about uh, the Kurdish history, Kirkuk's a pretty interesting place. Kurds, I mean, again, as people, I mean, people are people, right? I mean, fantastic folks. Um, I think some of the Kurdish leadership is, uh, uh, or if you look over, uh, in, over history, um, particularly post-World War II history, um, they have a tendency to overreach a little bit. And, um, and I think that's what happened during the recent um, independence referendum. Uh, it's not to say that the Kurds don't deserve their own homeland. It's just all, it's what do you do about getting it and making it happen. Uh, you can go back to, you know, post-World War I and all those things that occurred since then. Um, but I think right now it's hard. And so, like, say, if you look at the, um, so we talked about Muqtada al-Sadr, you know, in his list. Um, it's not Muqtada himself who is emerging as the victor. It's his list. But, you know, there, there is, um, you know, particularly since the, the, the 50s and 60s, um, you know, a, um, a, a trend in Iraq to rile up anti-Kurdish sentiment amongst the Arab Iraqis at times of discord. And because that creates a sense of unification amongst the Arab elements of in Iraq. And so I, I think um, you know, we're in for some real, I think, again, to the earlier point about uncertainty. You know, Iran plays there, Iraq plays there, the Turks have a big play there. Um, the U.S. is a player there. Um, you know, the Syrian, I mean, you know, if you look at the Kurdish population where they're spread, you know, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran primarily, a bunch in Sweden as well. Um, and um, uh, long story. But, um, you know, I, I think um, the, the long approach uh, will uh, behoove them more so. But what I'm really worried about in, in the near term, as in like the five, next five, ten year period, is that there could be some spark along that line um, that could see a return to, to some type of more um, conflict. That would be a disaster uh, for the Kurds. So. so 
If I heard you right, it sounded like you were saying that the Iraqi Arabs were assisting the Kurds in defining who they are as a people separate from the Iraqis to give them something to kind of argue against. Is Uh, is that uh, part of it? Um, well, I mean, nobody would... It's would, probably not the... Uh, the well, goal. actually, in, in, in that sense, actually, what I was saying is that the, uh, um, there, there's a trend in time where Iraqi Arabs would be unified against the Kurds okay. as a means to unify the center and, and the north center and south components of the country. And, um, and, I mean, the Kurds themselves, I mean, you know, they've fought a, a series of internal civil wars, so they're not necessarily um, as unified as they might be. Uh, what, what happens after Barzani goes... Uh, as in the current uh, um, Barzani, uh, the leader. I mean, he's still the pre- uh, you know, the head of the KRG um, unconstitutionally. Um, you know, part of my job in Iraq back in the day was to track election violence, and that also included in Kurdistan. And uh, you know, there's human rights issues and all kinds of things abound there. So it's it's not a budding democracy in northern Iraq just yet. But um, but again, yeah. So you know, I also fear for that component of the, of the question. All right, guys, this is going to be the last question. Thank you. Um, listening to, uh, to your discussion and hearing about, you know, riling up the Middle East or things that have happened, since uh, I started paying attention in high school in 1974, I believe it was the Yom Kippur. I'm not going to tell you how old it was in 1974. <laughs> um, really started paying attention, and, and during my entire adult life, there have just been just constant clashes and chaos and anger and rage over and over and over, it seems, and kind of seems to be driven by a cultural environment for thousands of years of tribal um, and very territorial culture. And now here in uh, 2018, almost everybody's got a cell phone. They've got a connection to the rest of the world. Are you optimistic? Do you have hope that maybe this next generation of folks in the Middle East um, or, you know, in, in Afghanistan or, or Pakistan are going to start to see things differently and change a little bit, see a better way? So, you know, everybody wants their kids to be safe. They want a home. They want food. They want the same things. But how do they get it? And do you think that's going to happen? I'm going to say no. I'll let you guess in a minute. But I'm going to say no because Facebook and cell phones, social media, all that, as far as I can tell, that's just another tool in the box. So the clashes that have been around for, it's prior to 74. They've been going on a lot longer than that. I don't, I don't think the, the method of information delivery is going to change that. They had their uh, perceptions, they have their interests, and those exist now, they did hundreds of years ago, and I think that's probably what's driving the, the violence. People are self-interested. They're, they're doing it for a reason. Social media, the cell phones are not gonna take that reason away. Uh, on the digital media question, so I mean, without looking at the, you know, the recruitment potential for radicalization and so forth, that's a different question. Um, just like in the United States and Europe, um, because of the nature of modern media, it, it allows you to self-select, uh, you know, kind of the grand echo chamber. 
and um, and that's occurring in the region in, in the Middle East as well. So it's not necessarily always been a, a positive development. Um, I, I would also, I mean, I would caution a little bit trying to characterize the, the region as you know this endless tide of conflict and people have never gotten along. Any kids in here taking algebra? All right. Well, who who came up with algebra? That was the Arabs, right? I mean, or the uh, the Ottoman Empire, the role of the Ottomans over time, and you know, and so you know, kind of what occurred in that context was, you know, they reached an apex and then they had a, unfortunately too long of a decline, and then so you had then the rise of Europe and the West and so forth in, in a different approach, and we also have to be honest ourselves. I mean, you know, our own histories are not exactly free of, of bloodshed. <laughs> Um, you know, you can just look here in Alaska, right? And sorry, that's the Virginian in me. Um, but um, no bloodshed in that state. No, none at all. And um, but but with respect to you know my hopes for the future, um, I mean, I guess I kind of if I didn't have hope, I you know would I probably wouldn't be sitting up here next to Ty. I mean, you know, again, I mean, I left the Middle East in 2012 in part because I was kind of depressed. I've been there for a long time. And it is really sad what's going on. And and it is hard to see in my generation them figuring something out. Um, and, you know, it, it is, again, the complex dilemma of, of the region is very real. But at some point, I, I have to have faith that, that, that there will be some, perhaps not peace is too strong of a word, um, but some new form of stability that will allow the quality of life for those that are in that region uh, to improve. And, uh, and you know, if, if that's not the case, that, that's, that, that'd be a really, really bad thing. Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. We just heard from John Moore, a 20-year veteran of public, private, and nonprofit organizations throughout South Asia, East Africa, and the Middle East. We also heard from Lieutenant Colonel Ty Moore, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. This event was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council and was recorded on May 16th at 49th State Brewing Company. If you missed this show or would like to hear more, you can always go to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For KSKA, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life informed. This is Alaska Public Media.